Hello and welcome to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. And today I'm joined by Dr. Sanjay Gupta, who is a consultant cardiologist at York Teaching Hospital in the north of England. And he has a popular social media presence and can often be seen doing YouTube and Facebook videos on cardiac related matters. And he has a specialist interest in cardiac imaging, which we will be talking about today. So welcome, Dr. Gupta, and it's nice to speak with you again. Thank you so much for having me. So cardiac imaging. So what are we talking about there? We're talking about modalities which allow us to visualize the heart and the arteries surrounding the heart. So visualizing the heart, both to make a diagnosis, to tell you about the health of the heart, and to also guide you about prognosis. So what are the uh, tools that you use? What have you got in your toolbox? And why would someone need to go through those processes that you do? So common modalities include echocardiography, ultrasound of the heart, CT scanning of the heart, MRI scanning of the heart, and also radionuclide imaging of the heart, so perfusion scanning, etc. Okay, so the first thing to say is that by far and away, the commonest and the most easily accessible tool we have is echocardiography. One of the unique things about the heart is it's a moving structure. And therefore, to try and understand it, you have to have moving images. And that is different from, say, imaging the liver or imaging the brain. Echocardiography uses ultrasound waves which bounce off different structures of the heart and produce a moving image on a screen. It's very easily accessible and is available in every hospital. And it offers a crude but well-validated way to assess the structure of the heart. So on echocardiography, you can see the heart, you can see the heart valves, you can see the size of the chambers of the heart, you can work out whether there's any leaking of the valves, whether there's any tightness of the valves, and you can see whether the function of the heart is strong or weak. And what we do know is from all the studies that if you have a structurally normal heart on the echocardiogram, then in general that points to an excellent prognosis. And if you have damage to the heart or if the heart is weak on the echocardiogram, then that points to a worse prognosis. And echocardiogram, am I right in thinking these are similar tools to what uh, you use on a pregnant lady to look at the uh, fetus? Absolutely, exactly the same. So it's a a non-invasive procedure and you've just typically put some gel on someone, don't you? You put some jelly on on the patient and then you have this transducer and the transducer will emit sound waves and those sound waves will hit different structures and bounce back and that will create an image on the screen. It can also it is also useful in terms of working out which way blood is flowing. So for example, if you close your eyes, you can tell usually whether an ambulance is coming towards you or going away. Uh, this is the Doppler principle. And so if you can use that information and convert it into uh, a color signal, you can then see whether blood is coming towards you or going away. And that would then tell you whether valves are leaky or functioning normally. 
Oh, okay. I see. That's clever. So you, you said it, it, it's quite accurate at determining whether someone's got a functionally correct heart. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's still a crude test, but there's two things. One, it's well validated. A lot of all the major research studies have shown that actually, you know, the information it gives does point towards prognosis. It's the gold standard in terms of trying to make a diagnosis of uh, something like heart failure, where the heart is weak or not. All valvular problems, the echocardiogram is a very good way of determining the nature of the problem, the severity of problem, and may also help you work out the best treatment for the problem. And presumably before that, you would have done a, um, I know it's not a, an imaging test, but a, a 12 lead ECG. Yeah, so the 12 lead ECG is telling you something different, right? 12 lead ECG is just telling you about the electricity through the heart. So it is just telling you about the electricity and you are making assumptions based on those electrical patterns. With an echocardiogram, you're actually looking at the heart. So with a 12 lead ECG, if you had a valve and your valve was, let's say, very narrowed, that would cause the heart to become more muscular because it would have to generate more force against that narrowed valve. The heart would become more muscular, which means the electricity would have to go through a thicker heart muscle and you would get much bigger complexes on the ECG. So if you saw bigger complexes on the ECG, you would say, okay, that looks like it's a more muscular heart, which means that it could be due to this or that. It didn't really give you the diagnosis. It just told you that the heart had changed this way based on the, the electricity through the heart muscle. With the echo, you're actually visualizing the heart. So a far better way, you're actually seeing, you can actually measure the thickness of the heart. And you can look at the valves, etc. So yeah, in the old days, uh, we didn't really have very much at all to determine what was going on. But since echocardiography has come along, and now we have more complex echocardiography. So previously, we just used to have something called M-mode echocardiography, then changed to two-dimensional echocardiography. Now we have three-dimensional echocardiography. So that has really revolutionized how we diagnose certain conditions and how we monitor conditions because it is accessible you know the machines are not that expensive there's a lot of expertise on how to you know experience staff etc it doesn't require really it doesn't require very very highly specialized just because it's so much more accessible so echocardiography is the kind of staple investigation. And from my perspective, if the first test I would do if I was worried about someone would be an echocardiogram. If they have a strong heart, I feel relieved. If they have a weak heart, I get more worried. And so what would you progress to next if the echocardiogram hasn't told you what you needed to know or it's shown that there's a, a problem there and but you need a little bit more detail? Where would you go next? So the echocardiogram is like if you thought of the heart as a, a car, the echocardiography is looking at the engine of the car. It doesn't tell you what the arteries that supply the blood to the heart look like. So with an echocardiogram, you can't see the heart arteries. You can't tell whether the heart arteries are narrowed or anything. All you can tell is that there's been no damage to the heart. So if you wanted to visualize the heart arteries, then the next step would be to do something called cardiac CT, CT scanning, which has now become the gold standard for looking at heart arteries, you know, for the majority of patients with chest discomfort. And with cardiac CT, what you're doing is you're delineating the heart arteries themselves. 
and that will then tell you whether the heart arteries are narrowed or whether there are any blockages, etc. So the CT, what does that stand for? And, and again, is this an invasive procedure? No, it's a non-invasive procedure. Uh, CT stands for computed tomogram or a CAT scan. That's you know how people recognize it. But basically, it involves going through a scanner. The heart is slowed down because, again, the heart is a moving structure. And if you want to visualize the arteries, if you don't slow the heart down, then the arteries will move with the heart and you'll get blurred images. So what they try and do is they slow the heart down. And therefore, in that short period of time when the heart is very slow, they try and image these arteries The arteries are imaged by giving the person a uh, contrast through one of their veins, contrast agent, and that contrast agent goes through the vessels, and you can then take pictures of the heart arteries. Okay. Um, Sounds like it's a little bit more expensive piece of equipment. Definitely. Uh, Not all centers have access to cardiac CT. Currently, the guidance is that if you, for example, came and said to me, look, I'm getting chest pain. And I'm like, you know, I was saying, well, I'm not quite sure. Maybe it could be your heart. Maybe it couldn't be. Maybe it isn't your heart. What test should we do? The current guidance is that the majority of those patients should have a cardiac CT. And a cardiac CT is an exceptionally good test in terms of if your heart arteries are normal. It's probably the best test we have out there that tells us that if your heart arteries look normal in a cardiac CT, then the chances of something bad happening to you are really, really low. It's not so good if you have abnormalities because you still then need to image it further because what tends to happen is a lot of times when you get buildup of plaque and disease in the in the blood vessels, you get deposition of calcium and calcium reflects rays. So what what then happens is, you know, when you're doing the cardiac CT, you get these bright bits of calcium and you can't see beyond them because of the calcium. So when you see a lot of kind of calcium in the heart arteries, one, it tells you that the arteries are diseased, but then you have to do a better test or a a more invasive test to see exactly how bad the narrowings are beyond those lumps of calcium, which are in some way blurring the image because they're reflecting these. It's like taking a flash photograph in front of a mirror. You get a, you know, you get that bright light, uh, hitting you back and so in that setting if if you have an abnormal cardiac ct most people would then go on and do something called an invasive angiogram which actually involves putting a needle into either the groin or the 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 wrist and passing a tube all the way to the heart and then squirting some dye into that tube that dye then fills up the heart arteries and then you take x-rays That way you're purely looking at the heart arteries and actually the lumen of the heart arteries. Uh, And that is the gold standard kind of invasive test for coronary disease. So with the the CT and the angiogram, you're not actually looking at the heart, you're just looking at the the arteries around it. Exactly, exactly. Okay. If you wanted to look at the heart in more detail, so, you know, where you have the echocardiogram, is there another test which can offer you the same thing but in a lot more detail? And the answer is yes. That's where you go to cardiac magnetic resonance imaging, cardiac MRI. Cardiac MRI allows a much better visualization of the heart, but obviously it's a much more sophisticated procedure. It involves the patient having to go in this very claustrophobic tunnel for about an hour with lots of noise and clanging 
but it, it is a test which allows excellent visualization of the heart. One other thing which is really useful for you to know, I guess, is that there was a series of experiments done in America where they took a bunch of dogs and they occluded the heart arteries and they studied the damage that was done to the heart when they occluded the heart arteries. When you create a heart attack, what is the pattern of the damage that occurs in the heart? And what they found is that all damage caused by heart attacks goes from inwards outwards. So from within the heart outwards, the innermost layer is always affected first. With cardiac magnetic resonance, you can give a dye called gadolinium, and that can delineate scar, that accumulates in scar. And so if you then take the images and you find that that scar is involving the innermost layer, then you make a good assumption that that scar was caused by a heart attack. So in that sense, with an echocardiogram, all you see is a bit that's not moving, and you assume that there's been damage. But what we don't know for sure, and sometimes we cannot be sure, is was that because the person had had a heart attack? Was that because the person had a virus? Was that because of something else? An MRI is very good because it delineates exactly the nature of the damage and the pattern of the damage, and thereby gives you a good clue as to why that may have happened in the first place. Can you do uh, an MRI or a moving MRI of the heart? Like you you said with the echocardiogram, you can see the blood moving and whether it's uh, going in the right direction, what have you. Do you get that similar sort of um, picture from the MRI? Yeah, again, you know, with an MRI, uh, you you can get moving images. And so you can see the function of the heart. You can see the function of the heart better than with echocardiography. It's not so good for looking at the way blood moves in and out in the valves, etc. But people are developing uh, MRI and, you know, it's coming along. But in that sense, echocardiography is probably still better to look at the heart valves and, you know, the, the actual physiology to study physiological changes within the heart. I think echocardiography is still better. But echocardiography has a problem. You know, not everyone has the best pictures. You know, you have to get a window and some people who carry extra weight or who have ribs very close together, you may not necessarily get any kind of decent pictures to be able to make any kind of assessment of their hearts. MRI doesn't have those constraints. So with MRI, you're not so worried. You can still visualize the heart very well. So it sounds like all, all of them have a, a part to play in your toolbox, as it were. The, they they all show you something slightly different. Absolutely. I mean, there are anatomical tests, there are functional tests, there are tests for the heart arteries, and then there are tests for the actual heart itself, the heart muscle. So is, is there anything anything else that you might do, or is there something else that you'd like that isn't invented yet? So in the old days, what we used to think is if the heart looks okay on the heart scan on an echocardiogram, then the person doesn't have heart failure, for example. You know, if the heart looks okay on an echocardiogram, then it's not your heart. So someone comes and says, oh, I'm getting more and more breathless. My legs are filling up with fluid. Those are typical signs of the heart being weak. But if you then did the echocardiogram and found that the heart was strong, then most people would turn around at that point and say, no, that's it's not your heart. Now they're beginning to realize that actually there are some people who have what may look like a normal heart on the scan, but may still have signs of heart failure. And actually, when you follow these people up, they do badly in the long run anyway. 
And so we're beginning to realize that we've used a two-dimensional modality to study a very complex three-dimensional structure. You know, the heart will move when the heart contracts, it contracts in different ways. It contracts radially, it contracts longitudinally, it contracts, it twists and turns. But the modalities we're using are only looking at one movement. And therefore, um, I think we are beginning to realize that sometimes our tests have their own kind of limitations. But it is that recognition which will allow us to move forward and identify new modalities which will help us determine what's going on at the heart. The other thing, of course, to say is that most of these are a visual impression. You know, you're just looking at the heart, right? You haven't gone inside the heart. You haven't studied it under a microscope. So can the heart still be diseased if it looks normal? And the answer is yes, it can still be diseased even if it looks normal. This is the fundamental problem when we hear about people like athletes, you know, who are playing football and then suddenly drop down dead on the pitch. I mean, these guys have been investigated. They've gone through medical screening. I'm sure they've gone through a whole manner of tests. And so it is always sort of something that is very um, uh, worrying when someone like that suddenly drops down dead because you say, well, he had all the tests. They were all normal. Why did this happen? And the answer is because we are only basing our assessment on a visual interpretation. We haven't actually taken the heart, looked at it under a microscope. We don't know you know, we can only look for things that are causing an outward change in appearance. I guess the heart isn't under stress as well when you're doing these tests either. We do something called stress echocardiography. So where you can actually look at the heart and then you put the person on a treadmill and make the heart beat really, really fast. And then you bring them off and study the heart again. And that's a good way of assessing uh, the strength of the heart. And those aren't those aren't, you know, those are relatively straightforward. It is that kind of patient, like yourself, you know, when you mentioned that, look, you know, out of the blue, suddenly, you know, one day you're out. Why did that happen? What was there anything that could have determined that that was going to happen beforehand? And the reality is probably not. And those are the groups of patients we need to study better and we need to develop more advanced modalities which allow us to determine you know, determine risk. I think I think what we have is a good tools for a population to study a population. Are we very good at using those tools to study an individual? And that's a bit more difficult, you know, because the reality is anyone anywhere can have something bad happen to them. Anyone can suffer cardiac arrest at any point. What we are doing is we're saying, okay, well, if you've got a strong looking heart, then you in general belong to that population who's going to do well. And so you, you talked about these other modalities. Um, do you know of any technologies that are coming along? I think there'll be metabolic imaging is a very interesting field. Uh, so one of the very interesting things, the, the big problem by far is heart attacks. That is the by far the biggest killer, right? So sudden heart attacks, heart attacks which come out of the blue, they, they're responsible for the majority of sudden deaths. And the the question is, why do heart attacks occur? And, you know, the general kind of understanding, certainly amongst the public, is that you get narrowings of your heart arteries, the heart arteries get narrower and narrower, and one day one blocks off, and that causes the heart not to get the blood, it gets damaged, the heart misbehaves because it's not getting any blood, and the person drops down dead. The reality is, when you look at the, or our understanding has changed, because what we're starting to realize is, 
not all people who have significant narrowings are going to die because that narrowing has blocked off. Sometimes people don't have significant narrowings. They have a, may have a very, very minor narrowing. And one day, for whatever reason, that particular area, that little plaque breaks off and the body thinks you've sustained a wound and forms a blood clot to try and heal that wound. And the blood clot inadvertently blocks off the vessel and stops the blood getting to the heart, which causes the heart attack. And that can occur within a matter of two or three minutes. Oh, wow. Didn't realize it was that quick. Yeah. So those are the people. You see, there, there are two groups of people. There'll be those people who will say, I've been getting chest pain every time I walk. I walk. So I went to see my doctor. My doctor did a test. He said, I have 99% blockage. He says, I need an emergency bypass. Thank God I had the bypass. It saved my life. The reality is, actually, when you look at all the data, bypasses and stents done in that kind of non-acute setting have not been shown to prolong life. So the question is, why have they not been shown to prolong life? And the answer is because that narrowing was probably not the narrowing that was going to kill that patient. The patients, a lot of patients die because they get unstable plaque, which may not be causing a narrowing. And that unstable plaque chooses to break off. If you think about it, you get cold plaques, which are nice sort of plaques, which have been there for a long time. They're like cement. They're not, they're not fragile. They don't break off. And then you have hot plaque, which is a lot more, a lot more uh, fragile, a lot more inflamed. And one chooses to break off. And that's where you get that sudden, the patient who is completely fine and boom, dead. So when you image the heart, at the moment, anatomical imaging is only largely geared towards trying to identify the narrowest bits. It doesn't identify the bits that are most likely to break off. So if in some way you can develop techniques which identify which plaques are hot and which plaques are cold, then you can start treating hot plaques. And if you treated hot plaques, maybe the risk of sudden death from heart attacks will go less. I see. That sounds good. Is is that feasible, do you think? I think so. I think because I think there's, you know, the, the hot plaques tend to be more inflamed. They tend to be newer. So the processes going on with the hot plaque are, are different. I think there are centers. There's a center in Oxford that has an interest in this. So I think that would be a really interesting thing. The problem at the moment is, you know, stents and bypasses are only done for the narrow bits. Right, because if you if you don't have a narrowing, then if you bypass the narrowing, there's no reason the blood will go down the bypass because there's no real narrowing. So the blood will choose to go down where it's always gone down and the bypass would fail. Similarly, if you stent something which is not narrowed, you don't derive any benefit. So of course it'd be one thing to try and identify hot plugs, and then it would be another thing to try and say, Well, how do you go about treating these hot plugs? How do you make these hot plugs colder? And I think that would be a very interesting field. Topic for another podcast, I think. <laughs> I think it's a very interesting field. I think that I think is the most important thing that's come out in my understanding of cardiology, which is, you know, the bits that we think are the most threatening tend, you know, the people die of things which can actually look relatively innocuous, but then choose to misbehave rather than something that looks ugly because it's long-standing things are unlikely just to suddenly cause a problem, whereas something that is relatively acute, something which is very hot, is much more likely to be dangerous. Okay. 
Have you got anything else to add in this imaging arena? Anything you'd like to impart or have we said it all, basically? I think we've said it all. No, I think we've said it all. Uh, I can't think of anything else. So in general, cardiac imaging patients should never be really worried about them because they're either non-invasive or minimally invasive. You might have to have an injection or something like that. Yeah, I think the, the this is the real advantage with non-invasive uh, modalities because, you know, they offer uh, a high yield, low risk. And the invasive ones are generally only done when the patient really, really needs them now, not ad hoc, so to speak. So there's a lot to be said. I mean, we've moved, you know, cardiac CT is incredible it, to be able to visualize the heart arteries in this way and to have a test which has been shown that if it's normal, it portends to really good patient outcomes is really reassuring. Well, that's brilliant. Thank you very much, Dr. Gupta, for that really interesting uh, overview of all of the types of imaging that patients might expect to encounter if they ever become a, a cardiac patient. And thank you very much again for your time. It's been really enjoyable. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. This concludes this episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast, and I'd love to know what you think. And you can do that via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or the website suddencardiacarrestuk.org. And you can find us by Googling Sudden Cardiac Arrest UK or the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast. If you have found value in this or other episodes, please help spread the word by leaving a review on your podcast provider, such as Apple or wherever is convenient. And don't forget, if you want to know more about Life After Cardiac Arrest, check out our books, Life After Cardiac Arrest, on Amazon. Make sure you click subscribe, and I'll speak to you next time.